Hi, I'm Leah Wheatholter, owner of Workman Forensics, and this is the Investigation Game Podcast. Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast. Today, I am joined by Pulitzer Prize author John Carreyrou. John was an investigative reporter for the Wall Street Journal since 1999. He covered numerous areas from terrorism to healthcare. He's here today to discuss his award-winning book, Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup, based on his investigative reporting of the Silicon Valley blood testing company, Theranos. John, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Our podcast focuses on providing listeners with ideas to enhance their investigative skills just in various industries. So I'd like to really focus on your investigation into Theranos and some of those resources you used in your investigation. But first, as I'm sure you've done many, many times, will you give an overview of the Theranos stories for our listeners? Right. So Theranos is a startup that was founded in the heart of Silicon Valley in uh, early 2004 by Elizabeth Holmes, who back then was a 19-year-old Stanford uh, undergraduate. She dropped out in the middle of her sophomore year uh, with a vision, which was for a portable blood testing device that could do uh, the full gamut of blood tests based on a tiny sample pricked from a finger. And she went about and raised money and hired hired people and built this company uh, over the course of uh, 12, 15 years. And she built it to a peak valuation of 10 billion and she'd kept half the equity so she had five billion dollars she was worth five billion dollars on paper and she had become a something of a silicon valley celebrity she was the first self-made female tech billionaire she was sort of the female second coming of uh, steve jobs the only problem is that her technology was a mirage it did not work they had uh, worked on four generations of a, a prototype and they had gotten none of them to work and so she had gone live with a, a product in walgreens stores in two states california and arizona that did not work that was faulty that was unreliable and she had raised a lot of money based on her claims and uh, i was a reporter at the wall street journal when i unmasked her so to speak in in late 2015 and this all came crashing down in reading your book and just learning more about the story, I think it's easy to look back and criticize investors for trusting a 19-year-old with all this money. Well, I mean, and just throughout her career. But what was the financial climate that enabled her to garner so much attention and trust from these investors? Right. So the first thing I would say is that the early investors were not defrauded. They knew what they were getting into and that she was 19. She had just dropped out of Stanford with barely any medical or science training to speak of. They knew that this was a a moonshot bet and that um, in all likelihood, you know, she wouldn't succeed. The the investors who were defrauded are the ones who came 10 years later when she uh, raised most of the money. She raised about 750 million of the billion after late 2013. Those are the investors who were defrauded, who were lied to. By then the company was 10 years old and she claimed to have achieved things that she hadn't. As far as the due diligence that those investors did or the, the lack thereof or their suspension of disbelief, I think you have to bear in mind that an unbelievable amount of money has flowed into Silicon Valley over the past decade, basically since Facebook broke out and and became a very valuable company in, in the late aughts. 
it's been a gold rush. And in these environments of gold rushes, and there have been several in the history of this country, especially on the West Coast, people start to want to hitch themselves to the next rocket ship to, to riches because they see other people who've done it and they want to they be that person too. And, and they ask fewer questions. They are less discerning. And, you know, uh, it's, it's no surprise that with every boom, there are, you know, usually a lot of frauds. Frauds come, you know, there's part of part and parcel of these party eras. And, uh, and I think that's, that is part of what explains what happened in this case. When I started to expose her in late 2015, you could argue that it was peak Silicon Valley boom. Does it completely exonerate those investors for not doing enough due diligence? No, but it gives a little bit more context to what happened. Sure. And actually, you just hit on something I wanted to ask you about in this podcast is at the beginning of the year, there were some articles about how biotech is a hot area to invest this year. It may have been every year, but just specifically this year, like you said, anytime that there's a boom or a bubble, just anytime that there's a surplus in an area, then there's just, it's just ripe for fraud. It's just ripe for somebody to sell you a story that has nothing behind it. So what do you think that if somebody's looking into biotech this year, because this is where they're supposed to go, what do you think that they should be looking for in their due diligence? You know, I, I haven't looked at biotech closely lately, so I'm, I'm not sure that I'm equipped to give great insight about that industry. But I think that, you know, no matter what the industry, there are basic steps that you want to take in due diligence. You want to talk to the executives, you know, and, and hear them explain, you know, what their company does and what their product does. You want to look at the board of directors and see if there's any expertise on the board of directors and if there are respected members of the field on the board of directors. That was not the case at Theranos. The board was impressive in other ways, but it was not impressive for its expertise. You want to understand what the business model is, not just understand what the product is, but understand how the company is going to make money. Um, you usually want to ask for audited financial statements. I happen to know that one of the prospective investors in Theranos, the head of a big merchant bank in Chicago in late 2014, was seriously considering putting a hun- several hundred million dollars in, into Theranos. And he kept asking Elizabeth for audited financial statements. And she kept putting them off, saying that you know she had never done that for anyone. And why should she break that precedent for him? And finally, he said he offered to just fly to Palo Alto and asked her to put him in a room with the audited financial statements so that he could see them. He said she could take his phone and he just wanted to see them with his own eyes. And she never agreed to that in large part because of that. He never invested. That's an example of a correct way of doing due diligence. Yeah. I don't remember reading in your book any auditors being involved unless I just missed that. No, there were no finance. Okay. There were no audited financial statements. In fact, the, the company had only one CFO, and that CFO is fired by Elizabeth in late 2016. That's actually the opening scene of the book mm-hmm. in the prologue. And after that CFO gets fired because he basically finds out that their demos for prospective investors are half bogus, and he tells her that they can't keep doing that. She fires him. And then Theranos never again has a real chief financial officer. Right, right. I do, I do remember that. Now, and it seems like when Theranos opened its doors, it attracted all kinds of very qualified management team there at the beginning. Right. But even late later in the company's history, there were always pretty good hires, people who had impressive degrees and who were well qualified, either engineers or lab scientists. 
The, the problem in large part was with the culture of the company. The, the culture was toxic. Elizabeth and her boyfriend, Sonny, who were running the company together, didn't want to hear anyone object. They wanted people to just do what they told them to do. And anyone who did object was marginalized. And if that person persisted in objecting, was usually fired. And there was tremendous turnover. And Sonny was usually the hatchet man. Mm-hmm. And so uh, even though you know they, they hired some talent, over the years, that talent wasn't allowed to express itself because their management style was so toxic. Right. And even the separation of all that brain power, putting them all in different segments right. and areas yeah. of the yeah, company. Yeah, she liked to, Elizabeth liked to compartmentalize in the early years of the company. She had teams working on different aspects of the technology and she didn't encourage any communication between them. She kind of liked to be the, the sole uh, repository of the overall vision that worked against her because they, they never got the technology to work. And seeing that, I kind of wanted to, you know, if there was a way to rewind everything and play it all over again, where that many brilliant people could all work together, it would just be so fascinating to see what they could have actually Right. They, and I think they might have gotten closer to implementing her vision. But, you know, as, as I've explained uh, many times when I've done book talks, there, there are basic technical reasons why what she wanted to do still isn't feasible. And I'm not sure that they would have uh, solved those riddles, even had the culture of the company been healthier. Right. Yeah. Even just the control that she had, too, on very educated people were telling her, maybe we should take it this direction because this is actually feasible. And she would say, no. Right. Um, So it just would have been nice to see what that evolution would have been in a different culture, I think. Right. She wasn't listening to uh, people who sometimes were older and oftentimes had PhDs in lab science. And that's a problem. If if you're a a college dropout with two uh, semesters of chemical engineering under your belt and really no other training to speak of, you you have to defer to experience and to knowledge. And she did not do that because she had, you know, among others, Larry Ellison as one of her early mentors who was telling her, you know, you never want to, you don't want to listen to the engineers because they'll tell you that it's not feasible and that you can't make this deadline and so so on and so forth. And so she took that advice to, to heart and chose to ignore her own scientists. Yeah, there's quite a few shocking things. Just as I was reading, just reminding myself, this is a true story. So I kind of started making a list as I read of just some odd things that Elizabeth and Sonny would do. Then because of the culture, it just seemed like no one was able to stop them. But so I'd like to get your feedback on a few of these things. Elizabeth's ability to get to the decision maker and just completely avoid a chain of command at Walgreens and Safeway just really blew my mind. Right. I don't even know. I wouldn't even know where to start on something right. like that. And Elizabeth and I are the same age. So, right. I mean, that's just. Right. So she cultivated Steve Bird, who was the uh, CEO of Safeway. And she cultivated Wade Michelon, uh, who was the CFO, the, the chief financial officer of Walgreens, mm-hmm. as well as this other uh, executive named Jay Rosen, who went by the nickname Dr. J. And through those relationships, she was able to really bypass the hierarchies of those uh, companies. And that's what really enabled her to get away with what she got away with. Yeah. Another time that I just kind of stopped and put the book down was when Elizabeth and Sonny tried to get Kent to turn over his patent for a product that was not even remotely connected to Theranos, but they believed they were entitled to that. I mean... Bicycle lights. Yes. A new technology for lighting the road uh, when you're riding your bike in the dark. Right. 
And she was just pissed off that he had been spending his, uh, his time outside of work working on this project. She felt like she owned him. And, and that because he was employed by Theranos, that that patent, you know, should be signed over to, to Theranos. Yeah, that blew my mind. I just couldn't even make that connection of how somebody could rationalize why they were entitled to that. But once again, just the culture and everything else that they had going on around them, I guess. Right. And I don't think she was that interested in the technology for bicycle lights. I think it was her uh, aggressive way of rebuking him and of making his life miserable once she found out that he wasn't devoting his entire life to the company. Right. The other, another area was when Sonny had an app written so that when something went wrong on the mini lab, it prevented the error message from appearing on the screen, especially during right. demonstrations. Right. That to me, as a fraud examiner, yeah. if that is not a perfect just example of intent, I don't know. Right. So that, and that's uh, an anecdote in the book involving Roger Parloff, who's a Fortune magazine reporter who was asked if he was interested in, in, in getting his blood tested for two tests on the mini lab. And so he was, he went to the Boyce Schiller Flexner offices in Manhattan, the law firm of Theranos. And there were these two uh, mini lab machines and they put blood samples of his in both of the machines. One was for I think the Ebola test, another one for a potassium test, and one of the machines malfunctioned. And Sonny had had one of the software engineers at Theranos write an app so that the, uh, the digital interface would show the progress of the test slowing to a crawl instead of showing an error message. And that's what happened. And uh, after about 25 minutes, Parloff couldn't wait around anymore. He had work to do, so he left and went back to his office. And the technician, the Theranos technician who was there on hand and who was my source for this anecdote, stopped the machine and looked inside and ascertained that the machine had malfunctioned and that the app had been triggered. If that's not fraud, I don't know what is. And what they were also doing is they were having prospective investors. They were showing the purported technology to prospective investors at Theranos headquarters in Palo Alto. They would have them come to a room. Theranos technician would prick their finger, put the blood sample in the mini lab turn it on, the machine would start whirring, and then they would tell the prospective investor, you know, this is going to take a while. Why don't you step out and go to Elizabeth's office and chat with her for a while or go out to lunch? And as soon as the uh, prospective investor had left the room, the technician would stop the machine, take the blood sound. Nothing had been going on in the machine. There was a whirring sound, but the machine was on a null protocol, as they called it. And so the nothing, no testing was going on inside the machine. And Technician would turn the machine off, take the blood sample out and run it over to the lab where it would get manually tested at the bench. Um, and then the investor, unbeknownst to the investor, you know, uh, who thought that the, the test was being done by the machine, the investor would get his blood test results a few hours later and none the wiser. And uh, yeah, if that's not fraud, then right. I don't know what is. And right. that will that evidence of these fake demos will be presented at the trial next summer. Right. Yeah. Just creating a a sound that makes it sound like it's I mean, right. goodness. If and they, they, had a term, they had a term for the protocol that these machines were on for these demos. They called it null protocol. So that was, and, and, the, and that is in the indictment. Yeah. So the, you can be sure that that's going to come up at the trial. The prosecution is going to, is going to confront the jury with that evidence. Yeah, for sure. Elizabeth and Sonny threw around non-disclosure and trade secret it seems like at nauseum. Just it was just incredible how they used that to intimidate, control, and all of these things. And so, kind of your comments on that as far as 
they're effective. It seems like it was effective. I mean, it was everybody... it was effective because when you're an employee of a, a company in Silicon Valley that has a lot of funding that reaches a, a valuation of ten billion, whose outside lawyer is David Boys, mm-hmm. and you have signed NDAs, then you really hesitate to blow the whistle because you know that the company is going to come after you, and it's going to come after you with this powerful lawyer, this feared litigator. And uh, your thinking is they're going to ruin me. They're going to bankrupt me. They're going to take me to court. And then whether or not I win or lose, they will bankrupt me with uh, the costs of of the litigation. And that's really intimidating for rank and file employees. And yes, that is the game that Theranos, that Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani played for years. Do you anticipate they'll try to use that at trial? No, I mean, now, now for a long time, even while I was writing the book, I would have a lot of trouble convincing ex-employees to, to talk to me because they were still afraid of retribution. But now that she's been indicted, now that there's been a book published, that there's been an HBO documentary and that she's uh, facing a jury trial, I, I don't think anyone is intimidated anymore. Moreover, she doesn't have any more money left to go after people with. Sonny still has some money left, but he's using a lot of it to pay his lawyers. Sure. So I think the the intimidation factor is now gone. But at the time, several years ago, it was very potent. And then anything that she claimed as trade secrets, the company went out of business last year. Is that right? The company was finally dissolved in uh, September, oh, September, October of last year. Okay. Yeah. Did they even have any trade secrets at the end of the day? Not really, because, I mean, they filed a bunch of patents and, and a bunch of patents mm-hmm. have been granted to Theranos by the the Patent and Trademark Office. But if you look at what the technology that they were working on amounted to, it was really just miniaturizing lab instruments that have already existed for decades. And it was just making them smaller and packing them into a box. There was no new technology. There were no new ways of testing blood that they invented. Had people known that at the time, I think you know they, they wouldn't have invested the sums of money that they invested in this thing. Sure, sure. We'll be right back to this interview. If you're a professional with continuing education requirements, then you've sat through your fair share of required training hours. Let's just say you probably didn't love it. And every year, the requirement hours sneak up on you at the worst time. That's why we've created the Investigation Game, an interactive CPE training experience that qualifies for two hours of ethics continuing education. The investigation game, The Case of the Man Cave, gives players the opportunity to walk through an investigation and solve a case based on actual events. Think of it as your favorite detective game, but with an opportunity to learn while you play. Players are given case details, decision-making steps, and additional case information to then quantify the embezzlement loss, identify schemes used, and uncover assets purchased with stolen funds. Gameplay wraps up with a presentation providing the case solution and awards the winning teams. This valuable event makes earning continuing education hours fun by combining a real-life case study with an interactive team-building game that we think you're going to love. To learn more or to register, visit investigationgame.com. Welcome back to the podcast. How did you first hear about this case that piqued your interest in beginning to look into it? So as I recount in the book, I read a a profile in the New Yorker magazine of Elizabeth Holmes in late 2014. Thought that there was something off about her and her secrecy and the the fact that 
she claimed to have this great whiz bank technology, but there was no peer review publication, no data. But to be fair, I might not have done anything with my intuition had it not been for the fact that a few weeks later, I got a tip from a pathologist in Missouri who was a source of mine who himself had read that same New Yorker story. And even more skeptical, he moonlighted as the writer of, of a blog called Pathology Blog. He'd written an item on this blog declaring himself a skeptic and a foe of Elizabeth's who had done battle with her over a patent. A guy named Richard Fuse saw the blog item and reached out to the pathology blogger and told him, you're on to something, you need to keep digging. And he was a full-time pathologist with a full-time practice, didn't really know how to take this on. And so he thought, who do I know who could take this on instead? Who, who, who do I know who's an investigative reporter who could do this? And, and he thought of me and he called me up and he passed the tip on to me. What was your strategy or what next steps after you got this tip? The tip that I got was really a third-hand tip. The pathology blogger had talked to Richard Fuse, who didn't have any primary information proving anything other than he'd been involved in litigation against the company and had become convinced as a, a physician that she was exaggerating her achievements. There were a couple other people that he'd made contact with, one of whom was the, the widow of a, a Theranos scientist who'd committed suicide. And uh, they formed this little sort of sewing circle of skeptics who weren't really being listened to by anyone. And so I started talking to th this group, but it was still conjecture. It was still conspiracy theory at this point. What I needed was a primary source. And I was able to make contact within a few weeks with an ex-employee who had just left the company, uh, who had been in a, in a crucial position. He had been lab director and he knew where all the bodies were buried. And once I got talking to him, the investigation really opened up. What types of information and sources of information did you rely upon in your investigation? You talked about sources and finding like a firsthand, some right. firsthand knowledge, but kind of some other things. Yeah. So, I mean, human sources are, are very important. I couldn't get them on the record because they were terrified that the, the company would come after them and sue them. So I had to grant confidentiality to all my human sources who were basically ex-employees. I also went out to Arizona because I wanted to prove that the tests that were being reported to patients and to doctors were inaccurate. And so I talked to patients and to doctors out there and was able to get comparative lab reports for the same patients that showed discrepancies in the testing. That was very important. But I also got documentation from some of my ex-employee sources, especially if you're if you're building an investigation on anonymous sourcing, then you want to have preferably uh, corroborating documents, mm -hmm. whether it be emails or, you know, internal documents. And I was able to get some of those from the ex-lab director and from Tyler Schultz, the grandson of George Schultz, who, who had worked at the company for eight months and who became a corroborating source. And then also you mentioned getting even testing reports kind of at the end by, I'm not familiar with right, I got, blood testing. I got, I, got, I got patients to cooperate with my investigation and to give me the blood testing reports they'd received from Theranos and the ones they'd received afterwards from other labs showing the discrepancies in, in the testing. And I also got tested myself. Mm -hmm. I went to a Theranos Wellness Center inside of Walgreens in Phoenix one morning in, uh, I think it was April of uh, 2015. And right when I got out, I took my rental car to the closest LabCorp location and got retested there. And a few days later, the, the two respective lab reports came in showing major discrepancies. Right. And then what about even getting some of the results 
from whenever uh, the regulators started going in and, and looking at Theranos at the end. I had sources in various parts of the government, one of whom I was able to get the full inspection. So, so the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which actually few people in this country realize that in addition to running the Medicare program, they are also the, the main regulator for laboratories, clinical laboratories in this country. They had done an inspection of Theranos after my first story was published. And some of the findings from the, that inspection slowly came out, but the full report had not come out. And Theranos was insisting to CMS th that there was proprietary information in that report and that therefore it shouldn't release it. And so I was able to get a, a source, a longtime source in the government who had access to that report to leak it to me. And then later, um, some things broke my way. Another person in, in another part of the federal government started leaking to me other things. Crucially, one, one of them was the fact that Theranos was voiding tens of thousands of blood test results results quietly to try to get back in the regulators' good graces, but not announcing it publicly. And I was able to get documentation showing that from this new source that popped out of the woodwork. Yeah, wow, that's incredible. That's some good information right there. One of the things that you used to even find some people, since so, so many people were terrified to talk or talk badly about Theranos, like we've talked about, but the use of Yelp to find a bad review and then get in touch with the reviewer. Right. I thought that was just awesome. Like what a creative use of technology and yeah. resources to kind of get to that person. Had you done that before? No, that, that was just me kind of pulling all the stops to try to find patients. And uh, yeah, I guess it popped into my mind and I tried it. I didn't even really know how, whether I was going to be able to get in touch with anyone through Yelp. And then mm -hmm. I figured out that there was a sort of a way. It's not as easy as, as in-mailing someone on LinkedIn, but it worked out. That's how I contacted one of my uh, physician sources. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're adding that to the list of ways that we're going to find and contact people for sure. Do you think that when Elizabeth started Theranos that she set out to defraud investors? No, I'm, I'm almost convinced that she did not have bad intentions when she dropped out of Stanford. She really did have a vision for a product. She really did want to become an entrepreneur. She really did want to follow in Steve Jobs' footsteps and, and become as successful as he had been. But she did also have a facility with lying. And it, you see it immediately when you start reading my book in the prologue. She's behaving unethically in the prologue, firing the CFO when he tells her to stop the, the bogus demos. And that's two and a half years into the life of the company. And it's nine years before she's exposed. I, I do think she had a, a, a facility with lying. And she was also steeped in this Silicon Valley culture of faking it until you make it. Some of those uh, guys that she looked up to so much, like Jobs and like Bill Gates, like Larry Ellison, had faked it a little bit in their early years as entrepreneurs, you know, over-promising claiming that their products had features that they didn't yet have. She felt that if they had behaved that way and gotten away with it, that she could too. So she, she had an ability to rationalize her actions. And she also felt strongly that the, the end product, if she ever got it to work, was going to be hugely beneficial to society and to mankind because it was going to be this blood testing technology that would be more user-friendly, that would get people to test themselves more often. And as a result, illnesses would get diagnosed earlier and, and they would save lives. Mm -hmm. She was able to rationalize cutting corners and lying increasingly as she convinced herself that the, the end goal was, was worthy of that. Right. When do you think that she crossed over and into defrauding 
investors? I mean, I think it was a very gradual process that unfolded over 12 years. But if there's any bright red line that she crossed, it's in uh, the fall of 2013 when she knows that her technology doesn't work. She's had, you know, they've worked on several prototypes of her machine. They haven't gotten it to work reliably. And yet she still goes live with her blood tests in Walgreens stores in California and Arizona. And she does it because at that point she'd been overpromising to her two retail partners, Walgreens and Safeway for almost three years. And the relationship with Safeway was already beginning to fall apart. The Walgreens relationship was going to start falling apart soon too. And also because she was, she was running out of money and she needed to go live with the technology and to commercialize the product to then be able to go to investors and tell them, see, we're for real. We have a product that works. After 10 years, we've gotten there. We've got the holy grail and now pony up more money. And, and that's exactly what she did after they commercialized the technology in Walgreens stores. They went and raised $750 million more million in funding. And those are the investors who were defrauded. Right. Yeah. That in reading your book, I felt like that's when that happened too. And, you know, I talk a lot about how in fraud, there's an intent. And we've kind of hit on a couple of those types of things, but then also the benefit. And it also seemed like in your book that that's when she started living large too. Private jets across the country. Right. Right. Flying in a Gulf Stream and being uh, chauffeured in a, an Audi sedan and, and then later in a Cadillac Escalade. She also had this new Theranos headquarters built with bulletproof glass in her office. She had this huge security detail mm-hmm. that was completely unnecessary. The security guys called her Eagle One and Sunny Eagle Two, as if they were the president and the vice president. It was completely over the top. Yeah. To me, it seems like all of the paranoia and then throwing around trade secrets just provided this amazing cover for them to just kind of be insulated from all this scrutiny too. It helped perpetuate oh, for sure. the scheme. Oh, for sure. The, the, the security and the paranoia was in large part because they had a secret that they were hiding and they didn't want it to get out. And that secret was that the technology didn't work. But they definitely used it to their advantage to play up that right. they were working on something real big. Right, right. Yeah. So what was the total loss to investors? All told, it's about a billion dollars. When you add the $70 million that Fortress Investment Group uh, loaned her in 2017, it comes to about a billion dollars. Oh, wow. And, and then not even to mention just the loss to the general public, too. Well, actually, you talk a little bit about that in the book of some civil cases. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the way in which the general public was affected is the way in which patients were put in harm's way. She put the public health in jeopardy. And it's fortunate that I came along and exposed her when I did, because the next step of the, the partnership with Walgreens was going to be to expand the Theranos offering to Walgreens' 8,000 other stores throughout the U.S. Right. You could imagine what a a health catastrophe that would have been. Oh, for sure. So what is the current update on this case? Three weeks after my book was published in June 2018, she was indicted. She and Sonny Balwani were both indicted on two counts of conspiracy to commit wire fraud and nine counts of wire fraud. The charges carry up to uh, 20 years in prison if convicted. The trial is scheduled to start in late July. Jury selection will be the last week of July and then opening arguments the first week of August. The judge has uh, set aside three months and predicted that the trial will last three months. So that's that's where things stand. Did you think she would probably fight it like she has been instead of Yeah, I thought a lot of people assumed that she would try to cut a deal. Mm-hmm. I very much expected her to fight this and to take it to trial because in her mind, she hasn't really done much wrong. She feels and has always felt entitled to behave the way she did 
in Silicon Valley because she feels like all entrepreneurs have been playing it fast and loose uh, there for decades. She feels that she would have gotten the technology would have been perfected eventually had I not, had I not come along, and so she blames me for essentially influencing regulators into cracking down on the company and causing the company's demise. And I expect that defense to be presented at trial. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, John. And I just really appreciate it. And I'm very thankful that Magic City Books brought you to Tulsa. So I hope you enjoy your short time here. And just once again, this is John Kerry Rue, the author of Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. The Investigation Game podcast is a production of Workman Forensics. For more information about the topics we discuss on each episode, please visit workmanforensics.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also connect with us on any of the social media platforms by searching Workman Forensics. If you have any questions, comments, or topic ideas for the podcast, please email us at podcast at workmanforensics.com.